John is doing better. We thank the Lord for that. If he was doing worse, I don't know what I'd do. I'm sure Meredith doesn't either. Would you open your Bible, please, to 1 John chapter 2, as we look tonight at the theme, Satan's Masterpiece, the Antichrist. In 1 John 2:18, we read, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. And then if you would turn over a page to chapter 4 and uh, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. This term Antichrist seems to be used in three slightly different ways as John pens these words. He is certainly thinking of that Antichrist who is coming yet, and uh, whom we will be focusing on tonight in this message. But he tells us that even now, in this age, there are many antichrists in the world. And he is referring to those who deny Jesus Christ as deity. Those who deny the Father and the Son. They are antichrists, he says, of a sort. Not the antichrist, you see, but antichrist in their teaching. And then he uses the term in the sense of a spirit in this age. And behind that attitude or that spirit of Antichrist, uh, there is the energy force of the demonic world. The teachings that deny Jesus Christ as God, which deny the Father and the Son in their unique relationship, that teaching is energized and promoted by Satan, and his demonic spirits. And so that seems to be what he has in mind when he speaks of the spirit of Antichrist. Would you turn with me now, please, to Revelation chapter 13, where we have a number of verses regarding the same historical figure that we mentioned who is the coming Antichrist, as John put it. Here he is not named Antichrist, but we know him to be the same person. John says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. Question, who is he? To find the answer, we have to back into the last verse of chapter 12, where the dragon is the one who is spoken about. The dragon is Satan. And so he is speaking here about Satan, or the dragon, who stood on the sand of the seashore. And I, John says, saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. 
And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on earth, on the earth, will worship him, every one whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. What verse 10 seems to be saying is that God has ordained justice so that those who are persecuted, the saints who are overcome, as it says here, will know during that period of time that those who persecute them and who afflict them will be dealt with by God. And that assurance of ultimate justice, it says, is their perseverance and their faith. Now, we will not read it, but the rest of the chapter deals with another beast, and I want to note that because we will refer to him at the close of the message tonight. The spirit of Antichrist is present during this entire age. But that spirit will be focused upon and personified in one particular person who will arise out of the mass of the Western powers. The Bible seems to describe this individual as a very charismatic person, a dynamic individual whose charm, intellect, and leadership will enthrall a desperate world, a world that will be hungry for someone to lead it out of its difficulties. He will be a man stronger than Hitler who was able to take a crushed Germany in the 1930s and bring it to a world power. This man will unite the Western powers behind him in order to provide a political and military base from which he will launch into the Mideast. And to some extent, and to a great extent it would seem, he will have power over a great deal of the world at that time. This man, whom we call the Antichrist, will be the embodiment of evil. He will be a puppet of Satan and a masterpiece of deception. Before we begin looking further at this subject, I'd like for you to bow with me in prayer. Father, I pray tonight as we look at this individual who will be Satan's masterpiece of deception that you would protect us from 
interference, that you will enable us to concentrate upon the Word of God. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We know that our enemy would like us to remain as ignorant as possible of his plans. Thank you for exposing them to us. And we pray tonight that our hearts will be drawn to our Savior, who is the real thing, and who is the Lord, and who is the King who will one day rule rightly in truth and justice over the whole earth. And it's in his name that we pray and for his blessing that we come to you. Amen. I'd like for us to think tonight about the Antichrist in several respects. First of all, would you think with me about the person of the Antichrist? It is important to understand that Antichrist is not merely a spirit, though it is that. Antichrist is not just a system, but Antichrist will be a man who will head a system. There are many names given to him in the Bible. We have looked at two thus far. Antichrist means not just that he is in contrast to Christ, but it means more than that. It means that he is in opposition to Christ, actively so. He is opposed to the work of God in the world. And it will be his intention to mimic and imitate Jesus Christ so that he, Antichrist, will assume a messianic kind of a figure in the world. He is called in Revelation 13, the beast. That seems to say to us that he will be a man untamed, a man without principle morally. While he will have a certain facade, at least for a time, presenting himself as a man of peace, a uniter of nations, a great statesman and leader, he will, in fact, in his heart, be a man of lawlessness and wickedness, a man who will step on anybody and anything that gets in his way. He will ravage and victimize the nations, and thus he is called a beast. He will be a wild man. Other names given to him in the Bible include the son of perdition, the man of sin, that wicked one or that lawless one, the prince that shall come, a name that we looked at in Daniel 9.26 a couple of weeks ago. But I'd like for you to turn with me to find another name in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. And would you turn there, please, to the seventh chapter. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the record of a vision which was given to Daniel by the Lord. He gives details about it in verse 1, and then he says in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring, stirring up the great sea. Now, the sea in the Bible typically refers to the Gentile nations of the world. You will notice that in 
Revelation 13, Satan stands upon the sands of the sea. And it is out of that sea of the Gentile world's world that this beast comes forth to him, whom he empowers and uses. And here again in this vision, we see the great sea. And the four winds of heaven are blowing upon it. It's in tumult. And then Daniel says, four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And so in his vision, he sees four beasts come out of this tumultuous ocean. The first one was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. A lion speaking of strength, of majesty, of sovereignty, royalty. And an eagle, that which is swift to its prey. This first beast, we know from Scripture, refers to the historical empire of Babylon. That was the empire in which Daniel, as he saw this vision, was serving under, as it says in verse 1, Belshazzar. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. A bear, a strong animal, a ferocious animal. The bear follows this first beast and historically has been fulfilled already in the empire that arose after Babylon, indeed which destroyed Babylon, conquered Babylon. That's the empire of the Medes and the Persians. They were a ferocious people in their battle against their enemies much like a bear is ferocious. After this I kept looking, behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Here we see a beast that is marked for its swiftness. Again, historically, this third beast followed the second one. And it was fulfilled in the empire of Alexander the Great in Greece. Alexander was noted for the the fastness by which his armies moved, which would uh, correlate with the swiftness of this beast that is seen in verse 6. And then in verse 7, And this, after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And so Daniel sees another empire arise, controlling the Gentile world as it was at that time. This is an empire that follows Greece. And again, historically, it has been at least partially fulfilled in the Roman Empire, which crushed its enemies and enlarged its borders. Rome was a terrifying enemy, as the beast is described here. Now, Daniel is not given in his vision understanding that there is a time lapse involved in the fulfillment of this fourth beast. He sees it all coming together. But from the perspective where we are today, we understand 
that this vision of a fourth beast has a certain time element that is built into it by God. What I mean is that this fourth empire, the Roman Empire, was never completely destroyed. It morally corrupted and fell apart on its own. But it was never conquered. And when he says it had ten horns, comparing Scripture with Scripture, what Daniel is talking about there is the bringing together and the reviving of this Roman Empire in the last days being composed of ten nations. A horn symbolically speaks of a power or authority or a nation. And Daniel is saying that he saw this fourth beast as composed of ten powers or ten entities, ten countries, ten nations. And as we look in the book of Revelation, we see that that part of it has yet to be fulfilled in the last days, those days that are a part of the tribulation, which we studied our last time together. Now we need to go on to verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And so Daniel sees a very peculiar thing. These ten horns uh, have another horn that seems to come up among them and causes three of them to fall over, to be uprooted. And he says that this horn has some characteristics not just of a nation but of a man. For he says, the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. What we have here in this little horn is Antichrist. As Daniel sees him arise from the revived Roman Empire of the last days. I'll turn over a few verses with me, maybe a page or two in your Bible, to where Daniel says more about this particular beast. Look at verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another, another king, will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And so there are the uprooting of the three horns. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Uh, we do not know fully what Daniel is told here. We do not understand that from our perspective today. I have no doubt that as history unfolds, and indeed as these days come upon the earth, that believers in those days looking at the book of Daniel will say, yes, that's exactly what it means here, what's happening right now. It is interesting that with prophecy, as the times unfold, additional understanding is gained into ancient prophecies. And that will continue to be true. Apparently, 
Antichrist will seek in some way to alter the times, the calendar. And he will also seek to change law. And it says that these will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That is an expression that we referred to in the last message. It is three and one half years. A time is one year, times at least two, and it is two, and a half a time is a half of a year. You add that together, it's three and a half years. And that is the same as the 42 months that we read in Revelation chapter 13. But it says the court will sit for judgment. What court is this? This is God's court. This is justice. And his dominion, Satan's or Antichrist's dominion, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. That is, God's people will reign. His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, I think we can understand how Daniel must have felt at that time, uh, more than 500 years before Christ, as he was given understanding of things that were to come upon the earth. Antichrist is seen here in his person as a powerful political figure who will arise out of the revived Roman Empire by overthrowing part of that empire and apparently the rest then giving themselves to him. That will then be his power base from which he will make his additional moves in the tribulation period. And God allows him to have his way for a period of time. Satan is able to give to this man what he offered to Christ, but Christ refused in the temptation. Satan will give to this man all of the kingdoms of the earth because this man will fall down and worship him. Our Savior is a lamb. This one is a beast. Our Savior is the truth. This man will be the personification of the lie. Our Savior is today in heaven building a heavenly new Jerusalem. But this man will build an earthly Babylon, which is described in the 17th and 18th chapters of the book of the Revelation. Our Savior is the seed of the woman who has come to redeem the lost. But this man will be the seed of the serpent. Now, there have been those who have conjectured that Antichrist might be a Jew. Because he is able to cause the Jewish people to follow him for the first three and a half years. You recall last time we saw that he would make a covenant with the Jewish people uh, for seven years. And in the, the middle of that covenant period, he will break the covenant by uh, establishing an idol to himself in the Jewish temple that will be constructed in that day. And so some have felt that in order for him to gain the loyalty of the Jewish people, he must be a Jew. 
I think that that is not the case because we see him arising out of the Gentile nations. But he will, in fact, deceive the Jews. And he will guarantee to them the peace that they long for so much tonight. He will be able to secure for them temporarily a time when they will have peace and safety as a nation. But he will turn on them and begin to persecute the Jews such as they have never been persecuted up to this point, even by Hitler himself. Now, having thought about the person of Antichrist, let's think for a moment about the power of Antichrist. To do this, would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament? We look in 2 Thessalonians at the second chapter. What we are told here as Paul begins this chapter is that the day of the Lord, a biblical term that refers to that period of judgment that is coming, the tribulation period, but also the kingdom following, the day of the Lord is an eschatological or prophetic term that is very broad, embracing first the judgment at the end of this age, which then leads to the blessing and prosperity of the millennial reign of Christ. Now, he says that that day will not come until there is first a great apostasy. Well, frankly, folks, I believe we're living in that day when the apostasy is taking place. That is, when many who name the name of Christ are naming that name deceitfully and do not, in fact, believe the truth about him, that he is God and the only Savior of the world, and that his payment at the cross is the only payment, the only provision that God has made for sin. There are those who call themselves Christians. They are part of large denominations, and yet they are a part of the apostasy, sadly, where they are falling away from the truth as God has revealed it to us in his word. Now he goes on to say, the second part of verse 3, the man of lawlessness is revealed in that day, the son of destruction or perdition who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now this is that abomination of desolations that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Daniel chapter 9. The beast will have a partner in accomplishing all of this, and that is that second beast that we did not read about in Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> he is sometimes called the false prophet. For whereas the beast is a political and uh, military figure, the false prophet, the second beast, is a religious leader. And his job seems to be to bring worship to the first beast. And so he is the one who arranges some kind of an idol in the temple in Jerusalem which will speak and from which amazing things will take place, which will deceive the world and draw people after Antichrist. Antichrist, as it is suggested in Revelation 13, will apparently at some point suffer a wound 
a wound that uh, should be fatal. But he is resuscitated from that in an imitation of a resurrection. And the suggestion seems to be that it will be said that he was, in fact, raised from the dead. And that will be his credentials to claim that he is the Messiah, the Christ. You remember we read in Revelation 13 about his fatal wound, which was healed. Now, all of that will cause this man to gain a larger-than-life uh, figure. He will appear to be more than just a man. He will, in fact, appear to be God. And many will follow him as God. He will establish himself as God, as it is said here. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 6, And you know what restrains him now, so that his time in his time he may be revealed. It would seem as though Satan would like to have brought forth his Antichrist long before this, but he has been restrained. What is the restrainer? Well, we've talked about that before, but I believe that the restrainer is, in fact, the Holy Spirit as he is working in and residing in the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I who know and love the Lord, who are part of the body of Christ, are a handicap to Satan. We are a restraining force in this world so that Satan is not able to move as quickly as he is determined to move. So what is it that has hindered Satan from bringing forth this Antichrist? Up to this point, it's been the restrainer. Paul goes on to say in verse 7, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, even in his day. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And I believe that that will occur at the rapture. Until that moment that we are called out from the world, we are a restraining force. But when we are gone, when we are gone, may I say all hell will break loose upon the earth. For then Satan will be able to freely bring to pass the wicked and evil plans which have been percolating in his mind, which have been laid out carefully and schemed by him for hundreds and hundreds of years. He will not delay, in my opinion, in quickly bringing to pass the coming of Antichrist once the rapture occurs. Now that uh, would suggest, to me at least, that probably we will not know who Antichrist is before we leave the earth. I have seen tracts written about Henry Kissinger, uh, about John Kennedy being raised from the grave, and Hitler being either raised or that he never died in that bunker and somehow he's going to appear again. And I think all of those really are, uh, well, they are speculation, but I think they're more than that. I think they're, they're wrong. I believe that this man has not yet been upon the earth. Perhaps he is alive today. That may well be. But he has not been revealed as the person that he is and will become <clears throat> as far as becoming a national or international figure. 
And I'm not sure that we will know who he is before we depart. And frankly, I don't care about that detail. Now it says in verse 8, And then, that is, when we are taken out of the way, then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And I say it again, though I have said it many times, that just because there are signs and wonders and miracles, it does not mean something is of God. It does not. For we learn here that Satan is able through his power and activity to bring forth exactly the same things. And it says, With all the deception of wickedness for those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. I think that those three verses are among the most solemn in the whole Bible. For what I honestly believe they are teaching is that those who in this age, at this time, reject, knowingly, willfully reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and take pleasure in wickedness, that they cannot be saved following the rapture of the church. That their day of grace is now. And that once the rapture has taken place, God is going to send them, as it says here, a deception so that they will not receive the love of the truth. Now we might think that uh, those that we are witnessing to and pleading to come to Christ and be saved, will surely wake up once the rapture has occurred, and they will then trust the Lord if they don't do it before. The fact is, if I understand this scripture correctly, that they will not trust the Savior afterward. But because they rejected the love of the truth, they will be turned to believe what is false, and that is the lie of Antichrist. Because they did not believe in the truth, therefore they will believe a lie in that day. Now that means that those who are saved in the tribulation period, and there will be millions, as I've said before, uh, if the book of Revelation uh, can be trusted, and it can, of course, then there will be millions saved in the tribulation period. But they will be those who have not heard, who have not heard in this age of grace. And so the power of Antichrist comes from Satan. And he will be given to do miracles, including his own so-called resurrection. Let me summarize and say that he will control at least the Western world at that time, the revived Roman Empire, through covenants. Then it seems he will extend control over most of the rest of the world. We have talked about the covenant he will make with Israel. We have talked about him establishing himself as God and the accompanying false prophet who will set up the image of him in the temple. Arnold Toynbee, the historian, said, We are ripe for the deifying of any new Caesar 
who might succeed in giving the world unity and peace. And he is absolutely right. And a Christ will be given power to persecute the elect, that is, the believers, during the tribulation, and particularly, it would seem, those who are Jews and who believe. He will inaugurate a worldwide reign of terror, murder, and blasphemy, directed primarily against the people of God. Thirdly, I'd like to talk about the punishment of Antichrist, and I think that's important to do because every place, note this, every place in the New Testament which speaks of him also speaks of his ultimate punishment and his judgment. There is no exception to that. Every passage that speaks of him also points to his ultimate doom. We see it here where it is said that the Lord will destroy him, verse 8, will slay him with the breath of his mouth and will bring to an end this man by the appearance of his coming. Now to see that more fully, turn with me and we turn finally now to Revelation chapter 19. We have here a prophetic view of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as he returns to the earth. It is a glorious picture as he comes with his armies to subdue the armies of Antichrist. And now it says in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. That is Christ. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. We did not talk about that, but that is that figure 666, which is mysterious to us today in its meaning, but which again I believe fully will be understood by those who are living in that day. And those who worship the image, and it says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And so we have here a view of that ultimate, awful, eternal place of punishment for those who reject God. It is called the, the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Can you imagine the horror and the terror of such a sight as a lake, a large body of fire, and the first two inhabitants of that eternal lake of fire are the beast and the false prophet? We see a little bit later in uh, chapter 20, a word regarding something that will happen in the last days. Uh, after that, a thousand years later, after that, after the reign of Christ, when the devil is dealt with. Notice what it says here. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So he is number three going to that place. And it says, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
None of us can take joy at those words. They are terrifying words. They're horrible words. But what it says is that these three, and as it goes on in the rest of these verses in the chapter, all of the lost will inhabit that place of punishment forever and forever. And I want you to notice that a thousand years later, after they were cast into the lake of fire, they are still there. They were not annihilated. They were not cast into the lake of fire and burned up and that was it. But a thousand years later, they are there. And they will be forever and forever. The earth, the world as we know it, is facing the most terrible time that will ever come upon this globe. And part of the terror of that time will be the Antichrist whom we have studied tonight. It is futile for us to <clears throat> spend time trying to guess who he is. What we need to be doing is to be busy serving our master, winning people to Christ so that they will not have to spend eternity in hell and so that they will not have to be upon the earth during this reign of the lawless one. You say, well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I am opposed to Antichrist. And I am against anything Antichrist stands for. And I say amen to that. But folks, we've got to be careful. Because when you and I allow the world system out there to control us and to dominate us, we are cooperating with the very system that will bring him forth and over which he will rule. And so let us live godly and holy lives separated from that world system. Let us not live for what the world system tells us to live for. Let's not be motivated by it. Let's not allow ourselves to think like it thinks or to be propagandized by its television and its other sources of media into thinking like it wants us to think. Paul said, don't let the world system squeeze you into its mold. Let's not do that, but let's be renewed in our minds by the Word of God and live for Jesus Christ faithfully. As I look at this uh, powerful figure who's going to come upon the earth, I am glad to remember that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world who is going to bring forth this, his masterpiece. Let's sing about that in closing. Number 100. Well, my book closed on me, so I'll have to look it up again. It is number 97. Greater is he that is in me, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world.